All right. Let's get rolling. Yeah. Derek is ready. We're almost there. Well, we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. There's been a lot going on. First, we had Craig in, who was a, a guest speaker, and, and then, of course, the B thing last week, which was very, I did not know. What a pain in the neck to make honey. I mean, seriously. Like, how complex did God have to make it? Like, seriously. Like, there should be a tree that just you put a spigot in. You know what happens with maple syrup? I don't know. Just, just my opinion. God didn't ask my opinion, though, so... And then Jim's been preaching over in Auburn the last couple of weeks, helping them out there, there between pastors. There's been a lot going on, so it feels good to be back. I almost could have caught that. It feels good to be back up here because it's always weird watching when you're so used to doing it, but we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, and today is very, very important because we, we've been talking about covenants, okay? So we've been in this series for a little while called The Alternate Reality. Reality is defined as the world or state of things as they actually exist as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. And the realization that we have to come to is that the world we see around us is not the world that you and I are a part of. We are a part of the kingdom of God. Okay, With that comes a responsibility and ability and certain rights. And that is where this covenant idea comes from. When Jesus in John 17 verse 13 says, But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world that, you, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world and for their sakes I sanctify myself. They, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. There's so much in John 17 that we've, we've, we've read it every week since we've started this. But the thing we have to understand is Jesus is making a clear distinction between the world that is not run by God and the world that you and I are a part of, the spiritual world. Not necessarily the one we see with our eyes, but the one that is influenced by the greater things, the greater power. You see, when we read verses, is that the same power that raised Christ from the dead quickens and makes alive our mortal body, it dwells in us. What is that talking about? Things that don't make sense in this world. There's a reason that we have prayer today for healing with no expectation of results. But we don't have problems with prayer for salvation without expectation of results. And the reason for that is we're not facing the immediacy of it, of the fact that we have to deal with the consequences if it doesn't work. Because if you prayed with somebody to be saved, so to speak, and they weren't saved, you don't know, right? But you feel better. See, there's a lot of things that are going on. There's an expectation that Jesus is laying out. You see, they hated me, and they will hate you because you're my disciple. Now, that's not true of everybody that claims Christianity, but this is what he's talking about, followers of the way. And he says a line here at the bottom of it. It says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. Now, that's an interesting statement. Because the word sanctify literally means to set apart, to set something for their sake. Who's there? Well, at the time, it was all the followers of Jesus. Don't, don't misunderstand that Jesus only had 12 disciples. He had hundreds of thousands of them. There were 12 apostles. But there were more disciples. There were so many people that were baptized by the disciples of Christ. Disciples were following him everywhere. All those people that were chasing him around were not all antagonistic. 
Most of them were followers. And so he says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, set myself apart. Well, if that's true, then why? That they also may be sanctified by the truth. It doesn't say by a truth. It doesn't even say by his truth. He says by the truth. And in Luke 22, verse 14, he says, When the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him, and he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we know he does the same thing with the cup. And what is he saying here? He's like, I am being broken for your benefit. This is for every time that you do this, you remember what I have done. That I have, my body was broken for you. My blood was shed for you. And we, we just take that so lightly. We've turned it into some sort of a sacrament where we just take communion and we just blindly go into it like, oh yeah, that's cute and that's nice, that's all of that. But what is he talking about here? Why was that such a big deal for him? With fervent desire, I have wanted to eat this Passover with you. See, it's the instituting of the new covenant. In Romans chapter 5 verse 1, this is a net result of that. Therefore, having been justified by faith, what does justify mean? That means you are now made whole, made right. You don't do anything to get there. It's what God has done by your trust in Him, which is what faith is. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, those two words that we have peace and we have access were unknown to any follower of Yahweh prior to that because they did not have access as you're going to see today. They didn't have access to God. They had access to God's representatives. They didn't have peace with God because what did they constantly have to do? Bring another sacrifice. There's no peace there. There's constant working. But there's something that changed in what Jesus did with you and I. Because what sacrifice do we bring? We don't. We don't really even sacrifice to get here. We don't sacrifice to pray. We don't sacrifice to give. We don't really have to sacrifice anything because we are in a very blessed situation. That's not true of everybody, but that is true of the majority. So there's something unique about what we call this new covenant. We're going to dig into that in a little bit. But it's like we have peace with God and we have access to God. And we're going to drill into that. But a couple of weeks ago, I started talking about something. I want to show you this. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34. You guys know this, but I want you to see this here. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and uh, took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Y'all, that's hunting. Not sitting in a tree stand waiting on something to walk in front of you. That's getting after it. Okay? No knock on you hunters. Verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So what are we talking about? David versus Goliath. And no matter how hard you try, you can't get the cartoon image out of your mind. 
no matter how hard you try. It's stuck with you for all eternity. Now, here's the thing. We know David was a young boy. What, what was he doing in the area? You remember? He was bringing the cheese. Someone had to bring the cheese. It was him. He brought the cheese. Did he come there looking for, he's like, you know, I really feel like taking out a giant today. No. His dad said, take the cheese. He took the cheese. And as he got there, he sees Goliath come out, defying the armies of the living God. And he's like, uh, what are y'all doing behind the corner there? Like, what, what's, what's happening? And he's told about what will happen to the man who will step up and fight him and defeat him and all of this other stuff. And he's like, and he goes into this whole diatribe. He's like, your servant, says this to the king, used to keep his father's sheep. And he said, used to. Why do you say that? Because he's like, when I kill this thing, I'm getting a different sheep keeper now. No more for me. And when a lion and a bear came, he took the lamb out of the flock. I went after it. I struck it. What was amazing is he says, the Philistine has defied the armies of the living God. And what he says is, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Now, that's a bold statement for a young man. Why was he so bold? Why was he so confident? It comes down to the covenant. You see, when you begin to understand the covenant, you realize that this was his guarantee, was God's word. Let's look at another one. If you're here on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about this. But in Daniel chapter 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and, and the story of, of when he builds the statue and everybody has to worship and they won't worship. And he said, okay, he gives them another chance. I'm going to start the music. And when I do, if you bow, we're good. But if you don't, throwing you in the fire. And here's their response. Verse 16, chapter 3 of Daniel, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now there's a lot of confusion here. I've talked about it on Wednesday night. We'll believe briefly. He is not talking about that if you throw us into the fiery furnace and God saves us, then we won't worship. And if he doesn't, then just know that we're not going to do this. We're not playing this game. That's not what he's talking about there. Because you can't fall and worship an idol when you're dead. It's not possible. Just use logic. If you look at different versions, you can see it more clearly state. If that is the case, in other words, you decide to throw us in, God whom we serve is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. But if you choose not to throw us in, just know we will never bow down to your God. That is a bold statement from some young men. And the question is, why are they so bold? They're confident. Why did they know how God would move on their behalf? They're not wavering on what God's going to do. They know what God's going to do. He will deliver us from your hand. Why are they so confident? In Psalm 89, verse 34, it says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Why were they confident? Because they were in covenant. They were obedient to the covenant. It's like David just like many who had come before them. You see, God made certain guarantees, certain promises in a simplistic term that if you keep my commandments, you will be blessed, and if you don't, you'll be cursed. Now, you can go into a lot more detail than that. There's a lot of detail of it. Keep the laws, right? All 613 of them. Keep them all. Don't miss any of them, okay? There's a lot there. But in simplistic term, if they were faithful to not go after other gods, 
they knew that God would perform on their, on their behalf. Because his covenant, he will not break. And he will not alter any word that has gone out of his mouth. Why were they confident? They were confident in the covenant. We talked about these covenants a couple weeks ago. The Adamic covenant, which is based in two. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant, which is where we're going. The covenant with Adam was a guarantee from God. Adam didn't, it didn't matter what Adam did at that point, God was going to do it. The covenant with Noah was that I will never again flood the earth with water. So at any point in human history past that, once God made that promise, do we ever have to fear a worldwide flood again? Absolutely not. Why? Because God promised it. And he put a sign. What was the sign of the covenant? Put the rainbow. Every time you see it, God will remember and you will remember. So we don't go around thinking, man, I wonder if today's the day where God's going to flood the entire earth again. Now, we felt the pain of floods. Made it, it covered the entire interstate this last time. We couldn't go north. We couldn't go south for a while. But we never worry about that. Why? Because we're confident in God's promises. Well, what about the Abrahamic covenant? I will make you the father of many nations. This land, I'm giving it to you and your descendants. After you, it's your land. I'm giving it to you. So what do they have to do to take, get that land? They have to go purchase it? No, they had to go take it. It was theirs. God promised it to them. When did God strip that from them? He hasn't yet. I don't care what CNN says. It still belongs to the Israelites. So the thing is, is that what did Abraham do to earn that right? Nothing. God promised on his behalf. So there was nothing that any person could do to break that covenant. Because it was not based on man keeping a portion of it. It was only based on God's promise, a unilateral contract. And when God is the one making the promise, I'm pretty sure we can take it to the bank. But then we get to the Mosaic one. And this is the bilateral covenant. This is the one where he's like, okay, here's my commandments. Do you accept these terms? They say, yeah, everything you said, we will do. And within 37 seconds, they stopped doing them and they built a golden calf. And for you fact checkers, it wasn't really 37 seconds, okay? But the covenant which they broke, it says it multiple times, the covenant of which they broke. When I took them by the hand out of Egypt, and the covenant which this is referred to as the old covenant. In the New Testament, this is the covenant it is referencing 99% of the time, referring to this old covenant. Why could it be broke? It be broke because it was based on man's ability to keep their side of the equation. God kept his side of the equation. What did he do when they broke their side? He sent judgment. That's what he said he was going to do. Okay? It's kind of like when you tell your kids, don't do that or you're going to get in trouble. And what do they do? That. Every time. And they continue to do that. And I swear, it doesn't matter how many times you ground them, spank them, give them sentences. They don't learn. I, I, I hope at some point they learn. But so far, we're not doing very well. So the thing is, is like, God always said, here's the thing. I will send judgment if you break these. Oh, okay, that's, that's cool, God. Did they think he was kidding? If you read the book of Judges, it literally is this circle pattern that goes on. That life is good. And then they go after the other gods. And God doesn't like that. So he judges them in one way or another, sends a judgment. And they don't like that. So they repent. God raises up a deliverer, a judge, brings them out, and things are good again. And you would think, oh, hey, 
that was not fun. Let's not do that again. No, they do it again. And it is literally this pattern that is developed in the entire book of Judges. So we hear the stories of Samson and Gideon. We're like, man, those are cool. No, they're dealing with a bunch of morons. Constantly. No wonder Samson was so screwed up. He's like, I don't want to save these people. So the thing is, is that that covenant could be broke. Now, the Davidic covenant was a promise to David that somebody from his lineage will sit on the throne in Jerusalem for all time, ultimately pointing to Messiah being Jesus. Jesus has yet to do that. Jesus will do that. But then we get to the new. The new covenant is what you and I are under. And if you understand these other covenants, you can understand the pattern developed in the new covenant. And I want to show you something here in Hebrews chapter 8. I hinted to this last, well, two weeks, three weeks ago. I've lost track of time. Hebrews chapter 8 says this, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if you were on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make a tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So here's the question. You say the covenant is better, and it is established on better promises. But the majority of people could not tell you the distinction between the old covenant and the new. All they will tell you is, well, salvation. But you can't understand what makes it better and why the promises are better if you don't understand the old. You have to go back. And this is the problem that we have. Is that we do not study Scripture we read passages. What makes it so difficult is the fact that it is broken in chapter and verse. Okay? It was just for references so you could reference somebody. Otherwise, it's like, okay, we're going to open our scrolls and just keep going. I'm reading this part. You know, when everybody gets there, we'll read it together. It's a reference point. But because of that, we stop at chapter breaks. And because of that, we miss the nuance and a lot of the context of what's being said. As an example, if you want to understand the book of Hebrews... There is at no point in time from the beginning to the end that you can stop because all of it is in context with the entire chapter. Now, that's not true of every New Testament book, but it certainly is the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is like outlining everything about the Old Covenant. And if you don't understand the Old Covenant, most of the new stuff in here won't make any sense. We have to make a distinction. So what is this New Covenant? In Jeremiah chapter 31, is where it is laid out. Verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. 
No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now the first principle inside of this new covenant that I want you to get is what part in here did God say, If they will do, I will do. There's none. There's nothing there. This is a covenant on behalf of mankind. That when you enter, it is not based off your merit, your ability to keep certain laws or commandments. That happens naturally. What this is is based on a promise and ultimately a cutting of covenant between the Father and the Son. So, when we read this, that this better covenant is established on better promises, we need to first know what the difference is. This is a unilateral covenant. When you think of covenant, think of your rights. It's a bill of rights. It's no different today. You have what's called the Miranda rights, okay? Somebody gets arrested, what do they do? They read them their rights. You have the right to remain silent. I tried that with my children. That does not play well. Anything you say can and will be used against you by your mother. She's not in here. I can get away with this today. And it's true. It's true. You know, you have certain rights. And what happens if those rights are not kept? You can be guilty and it gets thrown out. They could take the evidence against you in an illegal, unconstitutional way and you get, it gets thrown out, as crazy as it is. I had an officer tell me not too long ago is that he said, what I know and what I can legally prove are not always the same thing. You see, even when you're bad, you have certain rights. When you're in the new covenant, just like David, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when their covenant, they knew their rights. They knew they had kept that covenant, and they knew God would keep his in. You and I have certain rights. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 8 again. We're going to start at verse 7. We've already read it. Better covenant established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now, what covenant are we referring to? The old one, the Mosaic Covenant, because we've already referenced that, the one that they broke. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Does that sound familiar? We just read it. Verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. There's a clear distinction. We, because of the lifestyle and the way that we were brought up, you grew up in church, do not learn the ins and outs of the old covenant. Most of us have not been interested. I grew up in a church where we didn't even read the Old Testament. We'd reference the major stories and things like that. But the church that I grew up in, they would often say, you don't need that, that's Old Covenant. We only focus on the new. And I understand why they said that. The part they're leaving out is that the Old Testament is the foundation upon the new. It is what it is built upon. 
in the book of Revelation, there's over 800 allusions to the Old Testament. So if you never read it, that will never make sense. So we have to have this basis point. So let's go to chapter 9. We're going to work our way through this a little bit today. I'm introducing this idea because this is crucial. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So what is he talking about? Even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service. We're talking about the priesthood and the earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was prepared, the first part, and it talks about these stuff in it. So where does this come from? Well, there's a lot of places you can reference it, but we're going to go to Exodus chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 1. So we're going back. We're going to look at this, where this comes into play. This is God giving distinctions on how this thing should be put together. And again, there's more reference to this, but for time's sake, I'm only doing this one. Verse 1, Exodus chapter 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. And the width of each curtain, four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurement. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain of the selvage of one set. And likewise, you should do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain. And fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain. That is, on the end of the second set. That the loops may be clasped. Uh, to one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. You shall also make curtains of goat hair to be the tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits. The width of each curtain, 4 cubits. And the 11 curtains shall be uh, all have the same measurements. And you shall couple 5 curtains by themselves and 6 curtains by themselves. And you shall double over the 6th curtain at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain. That is the outermost in one set. And 50 loops on the edge of the curtain in the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps. And the clasp and the, and the loops and a couple of the tent together. Then it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side. And what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent, shall, you shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed with red with... Uh, Red for the tent, and a covering of badger skins above that. And for the tabernacle, you should make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of the board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be on each board for binding one, uh, one to another. Thus you should make for all the boards of the tabernacle. And you should make the boards of the tabernacle 20 boards for the south side. You should make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards. Two sockets under each of the boards for his two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there should be 20 boards. And there are 40 uh, sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the far side of the tabernacle westward and shall make six boards. And you shall ma also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom and they shall be coupled together at the top by one one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each of the board. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on the side of the tabernacle, five bar bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five boards bars for the boards on the side of the tabernacle on the far west side. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold, make the rings of gold as holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown in the mountain. You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, a blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen, and you should be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. 
And you shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clouds. And then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. And the veil will be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you should put the table on the north side. You should make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and hooks shall be gold and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Wasn't that fun? It's no wonder nobody reads this stuff. Now, is that detailed? Was God rather specific? And here's the fun part. We didn't even talk about the stuff inside. It just said, oh yeah, bring that stuff in. You should see the detail of, of all the stuff being made. It's pretty detailed. God left nothing out. And the thing is, is that he says later that it's the picture that Moses saw. Moses saw the one in heaven, and he copied it to a T. But this is detailed. And here's the beautiful part. After they get done setting it up, a few days later, they get to take it all down and move, and they get to do it all over again. Aren't you glad? Things are better now. If there were no better promises and anything like that, that alone gets it in. So let me show you a picture of this. This is what it looks like in brief images, okay? It would always have the interest on the west. You see it here. This is the outer court. I forgot to grab my laser pointer. Would you mind grabbing my laser pointer for me in the other room, bud? Um, it's always out here. Here's where, and it's hard to tell because I'm finding these pictures on the internet, so bear with me. But I know it's a little fuzzy. But you have the bronze uh, altar. This is where they would make the sacrifice. Past that, you had the brazen labor, which is where they would wash, do the ceremony of cleansing. And then they would go inside. And then on the outside of this, so you had all this area here fenced in, and you had the camps set around on each side where they are. And then you've got, uh, this is the outer course. Then you go inside, and you've got the inner sanctuary, and you've got the most holy place. And it's all of these different things. Thanks, bud. Let's see if it works. It does. Beautiful. So, Right in there, I know it's hard to tell, but this is the Shekinah glory. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was coming out. I'm going to show you all that in detail here. But the bottom line is, is all of that detail was there for a purpose. And you're going to see that. So, let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 again. So then it did, even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service in the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared. And now you know all the detail that went into preparing it. The first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So let me break this down a little bit. This is the inside of it, okay? Later on becomes the temple. There's just as much detail about the temple, but the temple was a permanent spot. This thing was built to move. You can see all the different layers of skin. You can see here, this would be the high priest. Now, all the priesthood will go into here. This is called the uh, 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 holy place. Back in there is the most holy place. So they would do the sacrifices outside, they would wash at the brazen labor, they would go and you've got the table of showbread, the menorah, and then you have the altar of incense. Only the high priest could go in here. This is the Ark of the Covenant, not the one that Indiana Jones was looking for, that was the cup, but this is the Ark of the Covenant. And set upon this, and I'll show you pictures of this a little bit, this is essentially the throne of God. And again, the detail into making all of this stuff is incredible, but for your benefit, I'm going to let you read that at home. Okay? And for my voice. So anyway, the priesthood went in here constantly, saying it. Go to the next picture. And here's a little bit better layout for you. So you got the outer courtyard, you got the holy place, and then you got the holy of holies, also called the most holy place. Again, we see as the people would enter in here, okay, they would come here, they would bring their animal, 
the priest would lay his hands upon it, as would the individual, and they would sacrifice that animal for whatever offering they were making, a, a peace offering, a burnt offering, doesn't matter, whatever the offering was. Then the priest would take whatever amount of all the different steps that they would go through for that, and he would wash here, and then he would take that blood or whatever was going on and bring it in here. The table of showbread, the menorah, the altar of incense. This was always burning incense. A lot of detail. Now, your average Joe could not go into this place. Couldn't. Only a Levite could of the priesthood. Only them. As you see in, I think it's in Luke chapter 1 or 2, where it's talking about John the Baptist's father. It was his time for service. They, they put them on a two-week cycle. His name got drawn to actually go in there and serve because there were so many priests that there was no way to do it any other way. So they all had a job to do. Only the priesthood could go in here. Anybody could come in here. One thing you'll notice, and I'm not going to get into the detail of this right now, but everything outside is always a bronze. Everything inside is always a fine metals, gold, silver, whatever. Bronze is always a symbol of judgment. This is sanctification. Okay? Anyway. So there's a lot that's happening here. This is the Old Covenant. This is the stuff that he's saying the first one is obsolete. But why is it obsolete? What changes? Well, let's move on. Verse 3. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on old sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he's not going into a lot of detail, except he mentions them. So let's talk about this for a little bit, so you can understand. Again, we've got the holy place. Any priest could go in there. But the high priest could only go in here one day a year. He would not wear this garment. Go ahead and do the next picture. Anybody, any priest, any person, any priest, high priest only, one day a year. Okay? Going to the next one. This here is the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? You have the mercy seat, and it had cherubim upon it. And then inside of that, well, there's the actual Ark. And that's where it talks about the manna, and Aaron's budding rod, and uh, the tablets. Now, we don't know where this is today. Ethiopia claims to have it. Okay? We don't know if they're right. Any of you goes to Ethiopia and can get into that building, take pictures, and bring them back. Okay? But anyway, and then let's go to the next one. Just showing you guys this is what they're claiming uh, or what was in there. Now, why were these in here? There's a lot of speculation. Never clearly says, but you've got the law, you've got God's power, and you've got God's provision. Okay? Because once you cut a rod, it doesn't bud. And Aaron was a part of that. And it was that rod was used in the uh, Exodus event. So there's a lot that's going on here. All right, let's go on. Verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, referring to the tabernacle, had been prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the service. That's that holy place that I was telling you about. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the consciousness, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinance, opposed until the time of reformation. So what is this talking about? It's talking about the Day of Atonement, ultimately. And that this high priest, he had to make an offering for himself 
and for the people. But this was just symbolic. It was pointing to something greater, a time that was coming, that they were concerned with only food and drinks and various washing. These were all the, the things that they kept, the laws that they kept. But they were getting into much deeper stuff. So let me show you some of these pictures here. Okay? Again, we're talking about this part. All the priests could go in here. But only the high priest could go in here after he went through a few things. Go ahead to the next one. So here's an image of this. Okay? Now, I'll warn you, don't ever take these as gospel truth when you find these pictures on the internet. They just help visualize it, and it gives you an idea. You, you'd have two goats. You had the one that was a scapegoat. I'm not getting into all of that. It was called Azazel. But they would take the blood, and they would sacrifice that goat. And the first thing that the high priest would have to do is make an offering for himself as an individual, atoning for his sin, putting a covering over him. But then he would step in representing the nation of Israel. So he would wear that blue garb before every other day, except here. Go on to the next one. As he would enter in, he would grab some of the alternate incense. He would have the thing with the blood because he is going and he's going to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now, they talk about this veil. They said it was the width of a man's hand. Okay, that's pretty thick. And all the detail that they've gone into about everything else is not surprising. They also talk about how there was no entrance into the holiest place, or the holiest of holy. There was no way for him to get in. They talk about it possibly being a supernatural event where God opened it somehow and he just walked through. We don't really know, okay? But it's a possibility. Just keep that in the back of your mind. So here is with the altar of incense. And what this incense would do is it would fill the room. Now, number one, you had a lot of blood going on outside. I'm sure it smelled wonderful. Okay, but number two is there was something about lifting of the praises. One of the things that the priests would do is they come into the altar incense and they would offer up these prayers and they would grab it. One of the reasons you see us lift our hands goes back to that time as they were lifting that incense up to God and raising their hands. It's not just I'm surrendering to God. Okay, that's that's a more modern interpretation. Go on to the next one. Here he is in there. That's burning the incense. He would have the, uh, some sort of a vessel with the blood in it, which he would sprinkle in here. Now, what happens if he got something wrong? He died. Yeah, pretty detailed. Get him all right. Miss anything wrong, you die. I think I got one more, don't I? Nope, that's it. Okay. So as he would enter in there on that one day of the Day of Atonement, he would know pretty quick how he did. Or he wouldn't know, I guess. He'd be dead. He wouldn't. I don't know. Anyway, doesn't matter. But he would go in there and he would bring that incense and he would bring the blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, thus atoning for another year for the nation of Israel. And every year, he'd have to do that. Every year and every day, the priests were out making sacrifices. But every year, the high priest had to step up. A lot going on there. A lot of pictures. Let's go on. To, back to Hebrews, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So what's he referring to? The tabernacle in heaven. The one that Moses saw, the one that it was created in its likeness. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the sprinkling is a reference to, and the without spot and blemish is a reference to, the Passover, the Passover lamb. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, 
for the redemptions of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. So what happened, if you will, since we're comparing this to the other high priest, Christ being our great high priest, whose work is now finished, did the other high priest ever get to stop? No, it was never done. What happens if he screwed up? He died. That means that the nation of Israel, where there was no atoning covering for that year, because you couldn't come back in tomorrow, quickly elect a new high priest, you know, because they too struggled to count the votes. Okay, took a little bit, but y'all are with me. All right, fair enough. Tough crowd, it's early. But they would, there was no going back. They had to wait until the following year. But Christ's sacrifice was so much more because he entered into it with his own blood. See, the difference was is he didn't sacrifice an animal. He sacrificed himself. There was no spot. There was no blemish. He was the spotless, perfect lamb of God. But as the mediator of this new covenant, he entered into the most holy place, the place to only the high priest with his own blood. Everything was perfect. Let's go on. Verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Makes sense, right? So if you have a will, your last will and testament, and your kids know about it, they may want you to go quicker. I don't know, maybe. But it has no, like there's nothing they can do to get towards the things that are coming to them until after your death. At that point, it is now their right to inherit what you have promised in that last will and testament. You all with me so far? Okay. Therefore, verse 18, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. So just like what it's talking about Jesus doing, Moses, when he instituted this, went and sprinkled everything. There's blood everywhere. Okay? He's just getting after it according to the commandment and the covenant which God had commanded him. Now let's go to verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heaven should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What copies are we referencing? The tabernacle that Moses built. Those are the copies. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have to have suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. How many times did Christ have to make that sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice? Once. How many times did that high priest have to make that atoning sacrifice? 
every year. He couldn't take his own blood. He couldn't sacrifice himself. He was not worthy. He too had to be atoned for, but not Christ. That work is now done. Do we see the distinction? This is why it's referencing this. Because the old one is passing away, but this one is not. This is part of the problem with the Mass and the Eucharist. Because what they tell you, this is the Roman Catholic Church, is that as they're breaking, it is Jesus' body. And they are breaking it every time they do this. And that that wine becomes his literal blood once it is consumed. Thus sacrificing Christ again. What did Hebrews just say? Offering himself once. Never has to be done again. Okay, let's go to chapter 10, verse 1. We're almost done, I promise. And I assure you, this is going to be the fastest I have ever gone through this information in my life. In fact, those of you that I taught were there when I taught through Hebrews a few years ago on Wednesday night can attest to that. Verse, chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, which is what? This new covenant. And not the very image of the things can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now what's he talking about? The law having a shadow of the good things to come, this new covenant. It's not the image of the thing. It can never by the same sacrifice that they offer year after year, make anybody who approaches perfect. If it could, it wouldn't be necessary for them to do it every single year. The worshipers, once purified, would have had no more conscious of sins. But the fact that they had to sacrifice every year reminds them of their shortcomings. Look at verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offering you did not desire. But a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written to me to do your will, O God. I believe that's out of Psalm 40. Verse 8. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor you had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. The first what? Covenant. The Mosaic covenant. That he can establish what? The new covenant. What is he here to do? Though do your will, O God. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We take that so for granted. Because we've never lived in an environment that you had to make these sacrifices. Even those who come from pagan culture who do make sacrifices as converting to Christ have an appreciation for this that we do not share. Because we do not sacrifice. We have only known Christianity in this new covenant, but we don't appreciate it. We don't get it. The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all is what has sanctified us. That was the will of God. Now watch verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. No matter how much they do, no matter how hard they try, no matter how many they get through in a day, it will never take away the sins. 
But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. Who's this man? This is Jesus. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now look at this picture again. I told you the brazen altar, the brazen labor. You go inside. Here you've got the, the uh, uh, table of showbread, the menorah. You've got the altar of incense inside the holy is holies. And we're talking about the great high priest who had a right to enter in there. We're not going to go into all the details about that. But you have the Shekinah glory in the presence of God and the throne of God. And there is something missing because when Jesus got done, what did he do? He sat down. What do you notice in all the furniture that it talks about is not in there? There ain't a chair to be seen. Why is that? There's no rest for the weary. They couldn't stop. There was never an end in sight that they could stop sacrifices. It was impossible. Because the moment they stopped, they were outside of covenant. They had to make these sacrifices. But Jesus, once and for all, he sat down. Because that part of the work of the high priest, it's over. The sacrifice has been made. The will of God has been performed. And now, we walk in the fullness of this new covenant. Verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And then he has their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering of sin. Remission of what? All the sin, all of that's gone. There's no longer an offering to be made. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, the what? The holy of holies, by a new and living way. How did they get in there before? Through death. Which he consecrated for us through the veil. What veil? The veil that separated the holy place that every priest could go the most holy place where only the high priest could go. That is his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. These are all references to that old covenant. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. What day? The return of Christ. But there's so much in here. See, we have boldness to enter where? The Holy of Holies. Now, how can we do that? You and I aren't Levites. And we're not from the line of Aaron. How can we do that? Well, it says that through the blood of Jesus, we do this. That that he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Look at this. That right there, what happened at the moment of his death? It was torn in two. There was no longer a separation between man and God. See, this is, this is where God's domain was. God was there. Only one man entered into that presence. But now everybody goes through God. How do you get to God? How do you get to the Father? There's one way. You have to pass through the veil that is His flesh and be sprinkled clean by Him 
You guys see the power of this new covenant? See, this is the stuff we take for granted. This is the stuff that isn't taught anymore, unfortunately. But it's like, there's so much more to this. And he says, have a full assurance of our faith. How can we have that? Well, he who promised is faithful. How was David so confident? How was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so confident? And every other person that simply stood on God's word. Because in Psalm 89, he said, my covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. This new covenant is an unbreakable promise from God that all who enter into it are now at right standing with the Father because we have passed through the veil. And you and I are the temple made without hands because now the Shekinah glory resides in us. That means when we go to the grocery store, the Shekinah glory goes with us. When we go to work, the Shekinah glory goes with it. What power raised Christ from the dead? It was the glory of the Father, which resides where? In us. We take that glory with us because our great high priest passed through the veil and you and I follow his example. So what is this better covenant based on better promises? We didn't have to build that tabernacle. You guys see that? You see how powerful that is? You see how much we take this stuff for granted? Sometimes we just have to take a little extra time to go through this, to have an appreciation for what Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your covenant that it is our right to every promise, to every guarantee to walk in. As we walk in a covenant partnership, a relationship with you, knowing that you fulfill what you say you will, Lord, we are so grateful for all that you've done, for all that you continue to do. Lord, awaken us to the realization of all that that is, that our relationship with you is based on your promise, that the fullness that we walk on and walk in, Lord, is based on your guarantees. And we don't simply exist in this earth, but yet we are here to thrive, to be your example. And Lord, I thank you that when we go you are always with us. We're endued with power from on high. Father, we give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Have a happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you next Sunday.